sermon passage this morning comes from Romans 11, verses 11 through 22. That can be found on page 946, the Pew Bible. Romans 11, verses 11 through 22. I'll begin reading in verse 1 and go through verse 29. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept my, for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see. And bend their backs forever. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I'm speaking to you, Gentiles, and as much then as I'm an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share the nourishing root of the olive tree. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but stand in awe. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, How much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own conceits, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins." As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. But as regards election... 
they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. J.B. Phillips wrote a book titled, Your God is Too Small. Most people in our culture today think of God, as Phillips points out, like a heavenly grandfather. He's always nice, always forgiving. He never punishes. In the popular book, The Shack, there's no mention in that book of the justice, the holiness, and the judgment of God. It's a one-sided view of God, isn't it? But look at verse 22. It says, consider, note, the kindness and the severity of God. We, we want to consider his kindness, don't we? How, how wonderful his kindness is. It's a one-sided view if we think only of severity, isn't it? We're also to consider God's kindness. Consider God's love. But that's a half-truth if we don't also consider his severity, his judgment, his punishment. Some of you may have grown up in a context where you heard only about God's severity, or mainly. But most people in our culture today hear about God's kindness, but not his severity. Virtually every funeral that takes place, I would guess from my experience, there is an assurance given that that person is going to heaven. Virtually every funeral that takes place, that happens in our land nowadays. Because we don't think of God's severity. We don't think of his justice. God is not only kind, but he is just. He is loving and he is holy. There's not only salvation, but there's also judgment. Many people dismiss this idea of judgment out of wish fulfillment. They don't want there to be a judgment. And so they convince themselves there isn't one. They're going to be very, very surprised. Jesus often spoke about the judgment, about the judgment being an outermost darkness. There is weeping and gnashing of teeth. There the worm in hell, there the worm does not die, and the fire is not quenched. It's not the only reason to talk about the gospel, is it, to talk about hell, but it is one reason. It isn't loving to fail to warn people of the judgment that's coming. It's not loving if you're in charge of the radar, and you don't tell people that a tornado's coming. That's not loving, is it? It's only loving if you say to people, there's danger approaching. And God's final judgment will wreak far more destruction than any tornado. That tornado is an anticipation, isn't it, of the judgment to come. I'm not arguing, by the way, that everybody in the path of that tornado was therefore sinning. I'm not saying that. 
The godly, the godly face these things too. The godly won't face hell though, but it's an anticipation still. It's a picture of what's to come. We love those facing the brunt of tornadoes by warning them and by helping them. And we love people by telling them of God's judgment. Well, let's look at our text for the day. I see four truths in this text. I'll just give them to you at the outset, and then we'll revisit them. First, Israel's sin led to the salvation of the Gentiles. Israel's sin led to the salvation of the Gentiles. Second, the salvation of the Gentiles is intended to provoke the Jews to jealousy. He wants the Jews to be jealous of Gentile salvation and be saved. Third, a greater salvation is coming to Israel. There's something greater that's going to happen for Israel. Fourth, more directly applied to us, battle pride in your life. Fight against pride. So let's go back to the beginning. First, Israel's sin led to the salvation of the Gentiles. Paul asks in verse 11 whether the Jews have stumbled so that they might fall. He means by that, have the Jews stumbled to such an extent that there's no future for them, no future hope for them? Is God, is God finished with the Jews? And his answer is, absolutely not, certainly not. But he pauses to say, in these chapters that so emphasize God's sovereignty, there is a purpose in Israel's unbelief. We see God's plan being worked out in history. We read in verse 11 that Israel's trespass has brought salvation to the Gentiles. In verse 12, he says, Israel's trespass means riches for the world, and their failure means riches for the Gentiles. Of course, the word world there and Gentiles, that's the same thing, isn't it? Riches for the world, riches for the Gentiles. That's two different ways of saying the same thing. He's speaking of saving riches here, isn't he? Saving riches that have come to the Gentiles by means of Israel's trespass. Verse 15, we see the same truth. The rejection of the Jews by God, right? This is God rejecting them. The rejection of the Jews means reconciliation of the world. Again, the world here doesn't stand for every single person in the world, does it? The world here means the Gentiles. It stands for Gentile believers, Israel has been rejected by God, not, not totally, right? We'll come back to that. But Israel has been rejected by God and the Gentiles have been reconciled. Gentile believers are friends with God, rightly related to God. They, they belong to God. Paul is telling us here God's plan for history. In the Old Covenant, salvation was mainly for the Jews. In the New Covenant, salvation is mainly, at this time, including our day, for, for the Gentiles. And Paul wants us to be 
astonished at that. He wants us to be surprised that we've been included. Because these are Israel's blessings. These are Israel's blessings given to us. Salvation was promised to them. But we're included now. So what should be our response? We should be grateful and thankful and joyful. I wonder if some of you have read a book that I just read this week by Cormac McCarthy called The Road. Uh, A great catastrophe has struck. It it seems to be a nuclear attack. The, The land has been devastated. Corpses are everywhere. The world is dreary. It's gray. It's bleak. Day after day after day of grayness. And a father tries to preserve the life of his young son in this destroyed world as they take a journey on the road, as they travel south. It's a world filled with danger. It's a world where there's really no joys, except for in their relationship. It's a world that's drab and desolate. It's a world that doesn't seem to have any future. Well, after you read a book like that, I look outside, and it's green, and it's vibrant, and it's alive. Daffodils are blooming, and trees are budding. I woke up very early Monday morning, and there was snow draped on the trees, if some of you woke up, so beautifully. I took a walk outside and just said, I'm going to go out and take a walk because it's so beautiful out at very early in the morning. And some of you saw that and maybe enjoyed that. And I was thankful to be in this world that God has made and to enjoy the quiet and stunning beauty of this world. I was grateful to God to be alive. How much more important to be alive spiritually, to know God, to be saved, to belong to Him. How about you? Is your life marked by gratefulness, thankfulness? Do you thank God for saving you? Do you thank Him often? Praise God that we Gentiles have been included in these blessings. God has been so kind to us. And we forget. I forget. You forget. Let's praise Him. That brings us to the second truth in this text. The salvation of the Gentiles is intended to provoke the Jews to jealousy. Verse 11. We see that's truth, don't we? He he wants the Jews to be jealous. That's kind of a strange thing, isn't it? Verses 13 and 14, we see it again. Paul says, Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry, I magnify my ministry to the Gentiles in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. So this is a good kind of jealousy, isn't it? This is a kind of jealousy that leads to salvation, that leads to deliverance. 
We think of jealousy typically as a bad thing, and, and often it is. But here Paul's using it in a good sense, isn't he? He's thinking of jealousy in a good sense, in a, in a positive way. God's jealous, isn't he, in the Bible? God is jealous for the glory and honor and praise of his name. And that is good. God is jealous for his own glory. He will not give his glory to another. There is a kind of jealousy that's holy and right. If you're a husband or a wife, there's a jealousy for your spouse that's healthy and good. There's something wrong with a husband or wife who'd be apathetic about their spouse falling in love with someone else. That, that's, that's not healthy, is it? There's a healthy jealousy for your marriage. There's a passion and a fierce devotion to your marriage that's fitting. Now, of course, in any human relationship, there can be a kind of jealousy that's wrong in that as well. But not all jealousy is wrong. And, and here, here, Paul says, I want to feature, I want to highlight my, my ministry to the Gentiles so that the Jews will grow jealous and they'll want to be saved. When, when they see the Gentiles enjoying salvation, he wants the Jews to say, those saving promises are for me. Those are for me. When he sees Gentiles embracing Jesus as the Messiah, he wants the Jews to say, Jesus is my Messiah. That's my Messiah. Jesus is Jewish. And he's my Messiah. Think of a son who rejects the love of his father. He repudiates his father's love and wanders far from him. But then he comes home. And he sees his father pouring out his love on an adopted son. And he thinks to himself, that's my father too. He is jealous of his father's love. He doesn't want to displace the adopted son, but he wants in as well. He wants to enjoy the father's presence and the father's love. And that's what Paul wants to happen to the Jews. He wants them to long for a relationship with God and Christ and the Messiah. I think especially of, of any here who don't believe, who aren't Christians. But it's a question for all of us, I suppose. Do you know God's saving love? Is Jesus your Messiah and your Savior and your Lord? Do you know what it is like to be forgiven of your sins? Do you have a clear conscience before him? Are you, are you saddled with guilt that just eats away at you? Condemnation that's destroying you. But through Jesus and his work on the cross, you can be forgiven. You can, you can be new. You can be cleaned. Through his death, you can have peace in your heart. If you turn from your sin, 
and repent and give your life to Jesus Christ and trust in him for salvation. Jesus can be your Messiah too and your Savior and your Lord. There's no better news than that. Third, maybe the hardest part of this message, at least maybe the longest, a greater salvation is coming for Israel. A greater salvation is coming for Israel. And and, and I'm going to give three or four points here to support that. In other words, I think Paul is teaching here, we'll see this even more next week, I think Paul is teaching here there's going to be a future salvation of ethnic Israel. By Israel here, I mean the Jewish people in particular. Not everybody just agrees with this. Maybe some of you don't agree with that in here. And that's, you know, we just all study the Bible and do the best we can. But I'm pretty convinced of this, you know. So here we go. So several reasons. First, we saw last week, and we read those verses earlier today, the continued existence of a remnant in Israel indicates that there's a greater blessing to come. So so Paul speaks of, in this chapter, a remnant of Jews who believe, even in his day. All through Israel's history, they've never been wiped out entirely. But I don't mean just physically, I mean spiritually. There's always been a remnant. There have always been some Jews who believe. But, but here's my point. My point is, and I actually said this last week, but I think it bears repeating, the, the preservation of a remnant is always a promise of more. When Elijah is told that there's 7,000 in Israel who haven't bowed the knee to Baal, I, I don't think the message is only, and it's always going to remain small. No, it's a promise of final triumph and a greater salvation to come. I think that's what Paul's saying here. There's more to come. The remnant is a promise that there's a greater salvation coming. Second, not quite as clear, but we see Paul wants to magnify his ministry to the Gentiles so that the Jews are made jealous and saved. Now, it seems to me, most likely, that Paul is thinking of a jealousy that would lead to a greater outpouring of God's grace and more Jews being saved. The Jews will become jealous to a greater degree than they are now, and they'll be saved. Third, verse 16. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. The dough and the root refer to the ancestors of Israel, to the patriarchs, to to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he says they are, they're, they're, the dough and the root are holy. But then, then, so do the lump and the branches, he says. So, so who, who are the lump and the branches? Well, verse 17, he tells us that the Jews as branches are cut off so the Gentiles will be grafted in. So it's clear here, you following me? It's clear here 
that the, what is holy, the branches that are holy, refer to the Jewish people. They're holy. What does that mean? They're, they're consecrated to God. They're devoted to God. They're set apart for God. Now, I think he's thinking of the whole Jewish people here. I think he's thinking physically. You, because, the, because the root is holy, so are the branches. Now, now, we have to be really careful here, I think. That doesn't mean all Jews are saved. Nor does it mean all Jews will be saved. Jews will only be saved if they put their faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And not all Jews have done that, nor are all Jews doing that. In fact, throughout history, most Jews since the time of Jesus clearly have not been saved. So Paul, Paul's not saying here when he says they're holy, he's not saying they're, they're saved, but I, but I do think he's saying there's a sense, there's a sense in which they're consecrated and devoted to God. A sense in which that's not true of Gentile unbelievers. That suggests that there will be something greater for them in the future. That's my point. I think it suggests it, that they're holy. There's, there's something awaiting them. Not all Jews, not every Jew who lived, but there's something awaiting the, the, the Jewish people. Something, something greater than we saw in Paul's day, and something greater than we're seeing now. Fourth. Fourth point. And really the clearest point of the three, of the four. Fourth point. Look at verses 12 and 15. Verse 12. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? The word full inclusion, literally the word fullness. How much more will their fullness mean? The fullness or their full inclusion is contrasted He's speaking to the Jews, right, of their trespass and of their failure. Now, now, are you with me still? This is a little bit hard in here, right? Paul isn't, Paul isn't denying that there is a remnant of Jews being saved all through history. But he calls that period of time trespass and failure. Are you with me? Most Jews refuse to repent and believe in Jesus and be saved. So that period is identified as a period of trespass and failure for the Jews. But that's not the final word. There's a fullness coming, he tells us. A day is coming that will be characterized not by trespass, not by failure. That's the present day, but by fullness. There's a there's a how much more coming. There's something more coming. There's a fullness coming. I think that means there's a day when it's going to be more than a remnant being saved. There's a day, next week's passage, when all Israel shall be saved. Verse 15. Verse 15 makes the same point. For if their rejection, that's the, that's the Jews now, right? We saw that earlier. If the rejection of the Jews by God means the reconciliation of the world, if that means the 
salvation of the Gentiles, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? There's a day coming when Israel will be accepted by God in a way that's not true with just a remnant being saved. Again, it's the same argument, you see? The present era is marked by what? By rejection, not of every single Jew. Not of every single Jew. There's a remnant being saved. Still, Paul characterizes that period of time as a time of rejection. Because most Jews aren't believing. But there's a day coming that will be characterized by the word acceptance. Which I think means there's a day coming when there will be a great ingathering of the Jewish people. In fact, Paul says something very interesting here. He says, when that happens, it will mean life from the dead. That phrase, from the dead, is used 44 times in the New Testament. And in every single instance, it refers to the resurrection from the dead. Physical resurrection. Paul says, I think here, there's a day of acceptance coming and it will be followed by the resurrection of the dead. It will be the end of history. So I think what Paul is saying, and it'll fit with next week, when the Jews are accepted, when all Israel is saved, next week, more on that, it will be the day of resurrection. It will be the end of this present age. It will be the wrapping up of God's purposes. We will receive on that day our resurrection bodies. So there's something coming that's more than is happening now. Remember how Paul started in Romans 9, verse 6, which is the main theme of these chapters. God's word never fails. God always keeps his promises, and he will keep his covenant promises to the Jewish people. And if God keeps his promises to Israel, he'll keep his promises to you, too. He'll never leave you or forsake you. Your parents may forsake you, maybe physically, maybe emotionally, but God will never forsake you. Even if you're struck by a tornado and you lose loved ones, God has not abandoned you. He's with you. He'll strengthen you. If you don't get the job you want, if you long to get married and that's not happening, or you long to have children and that's not happening, or your children aren't turning out the way you hoped at all, or whatever it is, God always keeps His promises. And His promises, I'll never, I'll never, never, never leave you or forsake you. I'm your shepherd. I'll give you everything you need. He's guiding your life according, as he's guiding history, right? He's guiding history according to his own wise purposes. He's guiding your life that way too. He's not withholding what is best from you. He's giving you everything you need. Not everything you want. Not everything I want. But we trust God, don't we? He gives us everything Everything we need. Everything we need. God is wise. 
He knows what we need. I think I know what I need often with God. I tell him, this is what I need. God knows better than I do, better than you do, what is best for us. Trust that he's directing your steps. Trust his faithfulness. Believe in your wise father. Fourth, battle pride. Battle pride in your life. The olive tree, the olive tree here stands for the people of God, both Jews and Gentiles. We read in verse 17, Now, if some of the branches were broken off, that's the Jews, and you, Gentiles, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, and then he's going to say, don't be proud. But many, many Jewish branches were removed. Many Jews, most Jews in Paul's day, were removed from the olive tree. I don't think that means they lost their salvation. But many Jews were removed from the olive tree. They weren't part of the people of God because because they didn't believe. And Gentile branches were grafted in. The the Gentiles tapped into the nourishing root of, of the tree. They're nourished by the saving promises. What's that root that nourishes? The saving promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They've experienced... We've been talking about this. They've, they experienced God's electing grace, didn't they? They were chosen by God. God elected them. The Gentiles, we Gentile believers, have tapped into this. So there's, don't misunderstand what I've been saying. There's one people of God now. I'm, I'm not arguing here for two peoples of God. Here's the Jews, here's the Gentiles. There's one people of God, Jews and Gentiles together, grafted into that olive tree. We're one in Jesus Christ. All Jews who believe, even the Jews of the end time, when they believe, they believe in Jesus and they become part of one people of God, Jew and Gentile together. The church of Jesus Christ. Not two peoples of God, one people of God. Jewish, Jewish and Gentile believers who trust in Jesus. But Paul is concerned, verse 18, that the Gentiles grafted in will brag that they, that they've been put on the, they've been grafted into the olive tree and the Jews have been left off. Jewish branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. So that's the danger here. Pride, arrogance, ungodly ambition, self-worship, egotism. We're called upon to worship and praise God. But we're sinners, so we tend to want that glory for ourselves, don't we? Rather than glorifying and honoring God. So we must battle against pride and conceit every day of our lives. That's true if you have an inferiority complex, if you want to describe it that way too. If you have an inferiority complex, you don't want to look bad in front of people. And that's pride, isn't it? That's pride too. We all suffer from pride. Fear of man, that's pride. We want to look good. We all struggle with pride. So we have to battle it. And, and Paul gives us three pieces of advice here. So he says, remember... So three ways to battle pride. Remember, believe, and fear. So I want to close with those three. Remember, believe, and fear. Actually, the ESV says stand in awe. If you look at the ESV, it says stand in awe. But but the word is actually fear. 
I, I think that has a little more punch than standinaz. Remember, believe, and fear. So let's just look at each one of these. How do we battle pride? We remember. Verse 18. Remember, he says to those tempted to be proud, it's not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. The root stands for the grace of God. The root stands for election. We won't succumb to pride if we remember that salvation is all of grace. There's no reason to boast. We can know this in our heads. Probably most of you in here, you do know that in your heads. But he doesn't mean just remember it mentally, does he? He means don't forget in your heart. Over and over again, what does he say to Israel in the Old Testament? You forgot. You forgot all that I've done for you. You've forgotten that it's all of grace. We are what we are by the grace of God. If God had not shown you favor, what would you be? Wouldn't that be fascinating in heaven to see what we would be apart from the grace of God? What would I be apart from the grace of God? I don't know. An alcoholic? An unfaithful spouse? I don't know. Bad. (laughs) Right? Lots of bad things would happen apart from the grace of God. And that's true of you too. So he says, don't forget, you've, you've done nothing on your own. It's God's grace that saved you. By the grace of God, Paul says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. We have no reason for conceit. Because we haven't accomplished anything on our own. So that's first. Remember, second, faith. Trust. Believe. Verse 20. The Jews were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. We only stand because we trust. We stand because we believe. If we don't believe, we won't stand fast. Faith, by definition, is humble, isn't it? You don't lean on yourself, do you? We, we, lean, on, we lean on God. And when, when we're proud, we're not trusting God but ourselves. One reason God brings hard times into our lives is so we won't trust in ourselves but in Him. When I have things in my life that I don't like, I remind myself, I want to get rid of this. But God brought this into my life, so I depend on Him. Because apart from it, I wouldn't. He knows that I need this, to trust Him. So, rely upon Him. Faith. Third, we battle pride by fearing God. Verse 20. Literally, so do not become proud, but instead fear, be afraid. Of course, there's a bad kind of fear, isn't there? There's a bad kind of fear that paralyzes us. You know, it's a bad kind of fear if you're too afraid to drive a car, assuming you know how to drive a car. This is not for kids, right? But, but it's, but, but it's a, that's a, there's a paralyzing kind of fear. But there's a healthy fear driving a car. Right? I get in the car sometimes and I think, wouldn't it be fun to just go 100 miles an hour down the road? That would be fun. But that, but there's a healthy fear that prevents me from doing that. Not just of the law. 
which we should obey the law, right? But it, but there's also there's a there's a fear of doing something like that. It, it'd be it'd be enjoyable to have a hot fudge Sunday every day, but there's a healthy fear, right? That keeps you from doing something that's damaging to you. You're, but it doesn't paralyze you, does it? You're not you're not paralyzed by that. It's just it's a fear that protects you. I think that's what Paul is talking about here. Because he says in verse 21, If God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Don't think. If, if you fall away from God and you quit believing and you renounce the Christian faith, Paul says, don't think you're in just because you made a decision once. Just because you went forward once. Just because you were baptized. Verse 22, Behold, note, consider the kindness and severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen. But God's kindness to you, provided you continue in His kindness. Otherwise, 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 you too will be cut off. If you don't believe and trust in Him, You'll be cut off. God is kind and gracious and generous to those who trust Him and those who continue to depend upon Him. I think that's a wonderful description of the Christian life. I love that phrase. We continue in His kindness. We won't be arrogant if we're nourished by His kindness. I want to be nourished by his kindness. But God isn't only kind, he's also severe. If you trust him and obey him, he's wonderful. But if you fall away from him, beware. Because he's a mighty lion. He will tear to pieces those who turn away from him. He will destroy you. He will destroy you. Fear giving way to pride. For if you despise him and reject him, he'll cut you off. No, I'm not. I don't believe true believers can lose their salvation. But I talked about this for six Wednesday nights. So I'm going to keep this really short. I don't. But, but here's, a, here's a warning, isn't it? And this warning is meant to keep us in. My main concern here is that we hear this admonition. Fear and avoid pride. So I just want to close by saying just four things, just these admonitions. Remember, remember the grace of God and give thanks for it. Put your trust in our great God and in His Son, Jesus Christ. Fear turning away from the fountain of living waters. And fourth, praise God, He always keeps His promises. He always does. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your grace and kindness and love and salvation you've given to us. We are so grateful that you are a faithful God and that we have been nourished by your kindness and continue to be nourished by it. And Lord, help us to remain in that kindness by faith, by trusting you, resting upon you. And Lord, help us to fear falling from you. 
May we have a holy fear that doesn't paralyze us, but provokes us to continue to rest in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.